to one class, what would it be? For me, there were a few that I just didn't really get into in high school, geometry being one of them. I don't know if it was the teacher or it was just too early in the morning, but that class just never gripped my heart. Or psychology. As a 16-year-old, it just went in one ear and out the other. The only thing that impressed me in psychology class was a girl named Kate who was sitting right in front of me. In health class, I don't even want to go there. But if there was one class I could go back and do over, the class I would put 110% of my effort into would be Spanish. I took four years of it but I never really learned how to speak it. I still try today, but I never got fluent in the language. And as I travel around the world and I meet neighbors in our own community, I often, I often find myself wishing I could speak in another language. One of the benefits of learning another language is that there are certain words that can't be adequately translated into English. If you really want to speak to the heart of someone, you have to learn their vocabulary. You have to speak their language. And if you are a Christian, there are a few words from the language of the Bible that we really need to know. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you need to learn Greek or Hebrew in order to understand the Bible. Thankfully, the Lord has given us many very good English translations of the Bible. But there are some biblical words that just don't carry over adequately into English. And today we're going to be talking about what may be the most important word in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word you really want to get to know because it takes you right to the heart of God and the way he deals with his people. It's the word Hesed. Can you say that with me? Hesed. It helps if you get a little uh, choke in your throat. Hesed. Hesed. It is sometimes translated love or loving kindness, sometimes mercy. Sometimes it's just kindness. We've been singing a lot about it this morning. In the ESV, it's often translated steadfast love. In the CSB, faithful love. The NIV sometimes has unfailing love. There's nothing bland or vanilla about this word hesed. It speaks of devotion mingled with affection and fortified with consistency, unswerving commitment, steady reliability, covenant loyalty. It's a love that doesn't change with circumstances. It doesn't vacillate with emotions. It doesn't depend on personal convenience. It's the kind of love with which God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Maybe it takes a children's writer to teach us the meaning of this rich Hebrew word. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her wonderful Jesus Storybook Bible describes hesed like this. It is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Wouldn't that be a great thing to teach your child or your grandchild that God has never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love for his people? Or the musician and Bible teacher Michael Card says that we experience hesed when the person 
from whom I have a right to expect nothing, instead gives me everything. Now, we're going to read one of the most moving stories of Hesed in the whole Bible this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you'd please turn there. And remember where we left off last week in chapter 7. King David was breathless in praise and amazement at God's grace and love toward him. God made a covenant with David to build him a house, a dynasty that would endure forever. David could hardly take it in. All he could do was get alone in the presence of God and marvel, who am I that the king of heaven would show such wondrous grace and kindness toward me? And he simply prayed that God would perform all that he had promised. And in chapter 8, God keeps showing faithfulness to his promises to David. The key verse in chapter 8 is verse 6, where it says, The Lord, Yahweh, made David victorious wherever he went. We don't hear anything out of David's mouth in chapter 8. The next time he speaks, after praising God for his amazing grace and praying to him that he would be faithful to his promises, is in chapter 9. And here's where we're going to learn what happens in in your life when you realize that the person from whom you have a right to expect nothing instead has given you everything. How does that experience of God's hesed transform you? How do people who've lived under the constant outpouring of hesed respond to the people around them? When you're the recipient of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, what difference does that make in your life? That's what we're going to hear here as we listen to God's word. And let's rejoice with trembling at the voice of God as he speaks to us in 2 Samuel 9. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, Is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, Where is he? Ziba answered the king, You'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Machir, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 
Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. This is the living word of God. Thank him for it. Now, first, we're going to trace the origins of God's hesed or loving kindness in this story. Second, we're going to experience the outpouring of God's hesed from this story. And then last, we're going to test the operation of hesed in our lives through the lens of this story. So first, tracing the origins of God's loving kindness or his hesed. Remember, the last words out of David's mouth were praise and prayer to a promise-keeping God. And he's experiencing God's promise-keeping power in his life. And so David wants to become a promise-keeping king. The very next words out of David's mouth are in verse 1 of chapter 9, where David asks, Is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness or hesed to for Jonathan's sake? David wants to know, is there anyone left who has the right to expect nothing from me to whom I can instead give everything I have? Does Saul, who regarded me as his worst enemy on earth, have any remaining relatives to whom I can show God's never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love? It's a shocking question, really. Because if you know something about the ancient Near Eastern world, you know that it was the policy of dynasties that whenever a new regime took over, they, they, they consolidated their power by liquidating the enemy wiping out every trace of the former king's family so that no one could rise up and revolt. We see it in the pages of the Bible with other kings to solidify their position. In the words of Dale Ralph Davis, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. Solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. Everybody, that is, except David. Instead, David wants to show kindness to the one who came from his enemy's family. He wants to pour out hesed on him because that's what David had experienced himself. He realizes that even though he has the right to claim nothing from God, instead, God is promising to do above and beyond all that he could ever ask or imagine in David's life and in the life of David's family for the sake of the world. And David experiences, he, he traces his experience of chesed all the way back to his friendship with Jonathan, the son of King Saul. He asks, is there anyone from Saul's, Saul's family to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan was the one who, from hereditary rights, should have been the next king. But what did Jonathan do? He made a covenant of friendship with David. 
He protected David from the murderous rage of his father Saul. He loved David with an unbreakable covenant love, so much so that Jonathan put himself in harm's way in order to take David out of harm's way. Jonathan handed David his sword, and Jonathan, Jonathan relinquished his rights to the throne so that David could ascend to the throne. He loved David as he loved himself. All he asked of David was back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. It was this. If I continue to live, show me kindness. Show me hesed from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your hesed, your kindness, from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan's covenant of friendship with David ended up costing Jonathan his own life. And many years have passed now, and David is now established as king. It's been at least 15 years since David made his covenant promises to Jonathan that he would never withdraw his kindness or his hesed from Jonathan's household. And the question that, that, that we should be asking is, is David going to keep his promise? Will he remember his covenant? No one else is expecting him to do so. Probably no one even knows that he made this covenant with Jonathan. David could easily have forgotten his promise. He could have denied it. He could have concluded it was no longer expedient, just like politicians do all the time. In 1932, candidate Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave a speech in Pittsburgh where he was arguing for restraint in government spending. Four years later, running for re-election, President Roosevelt wanted to go back to Pittsburgh and make a speech where he would argue for increases in government spending for the New Deal. He said to his advisor, what should I do? How can I make an about-face without looking two-faced? Because no politician wants to be a flip-flopper. So do you know what the advisor told him? Deny that you made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. Just forget about it. Deny those words. Go back on your words. What will David do? Will he treat his relationship with Jonathan like a consumer relationship or like a covenant relationship? I heard Tim Keller describing the difference between a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship. A consumer relationship is when you look to someone to supply your needs. As long as they're giving you what you want for a price you think is fair, you keep up the relationship. But when they stop meeting your needs, you end the relationship, you go somewhere else. So in the consumer relationship, you sacrifice the relationship if it's not meeting your needs. If you get tired of Giordano's Pizza and if they raise their prices, you say, oh, okay, I'm going to Lou Malnati's. And no one's going to blame you for switching your allegiance. In a consumer relationship, you sacrifice the relationship if it's not meeting your needs. But in a covenant relationship, you sacrifice your needs in order to maintain the relationship. You serve. You are committed to that relationship even when it's not meeting your needs. Keller says, covenant love always limits you. 
it limits your freedom. The question is, will David treat his relationship with Jonathan like a consumer, or will he remember his covenant? Will he limit his freedom to do whatever he wants to do as king, or will he keep a promise he made long ago at cost to himself? And in light of the power David now has and the amount of time that has elapsed, it is nothing short of a wonder that he summons Ziba, an old servant from Saul's household, and once again shows he is intent on not suspending this search until it's absolutely clear that no one remains to whom he can show the hesed kindness of God. Strikingly, David again presses the question in verse 3, is there anyone left of Saul's family to whom I can show the kindness, the hesed, and adds these words, of God. And the answer is at the end of verse 3. There is still a son of Jonathan. And for reasons unknown to us at this time, Ziba's not telling David the whole truth. He gives the impression there's only one son left, but later on in chapter 21, it will become clear that there are other surviving members of Saul's household. And Ziba chooses to tell the king only one significant fact about this son of Jonathan, and that is he is lame in both feet. And this is the narrator's hint that we have been introduced to this young man before in the narrative. It was back in chapter 4, verse 4. We were told there that Saul had a son, Jonathan, who had a son whose feet were crippled. And we were told how it happened. He was five years old, just a kindergartner, when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, when the news spread that Saul and Jonathan had died on Mount Gilboa. And in the, in the flurry of activity, his nanny, who feared for his life, because of the policy of purge that usually happened, she picked him up and she fled. And she grabbed him so quickly, she must have dropped the poor little boy. And the fall was so severe and the bones were so badly broken. And the care he received was so sparse that he remained crippled for the rest of his life, unable to walk properly after this incident when he was only Five years old. So just imagine what Mephibosheth has gone through. As a five-year-old boy, in an instant, in a day, he lost his grandpa, he lost his father, he lost his royal privileges, and he lost his mobility. This five-year-old boy will never play ball again. His name means seething shame. Or one who scatters shame from the mouth of shame. And the most formative years of Mephibosheth's life will be spent in seclusion because he's a surviving heir of King Saul's household, living in a time when his late grandfather's legacy is seething with shame. Now, many years have passed. He's a grown man with a son of his own. He's settled into a life of obscurity. He's living in isolation as a refugee. But Ziba knows his whereabouts. He says to the king in verse 4, you'll find him in Lodabar, which means no word, nothing. 
It's a wretched, arid, no man's land. That's where you'll find him. This former young prince is now a dependent, helpless cripple, seething with shame in a dry and dusty desert town named Nowhere, nothing. He's a refugee in the house of a man named Makir. That's his helpless situation, and how King David responds to it is going to give us a beautiful window, a beautiful illustration of the ways of our King, Christ, and the nature of his kingdom. Let's put it on the screen. Our King is the type of King who pursues those who have the right to expect nothing from him and instead lavishes kindness on them. The gates of Christ's kingdom are open wide to former enemies who are desperately in need of God's kindness. That's the nature of our king and his kingdom. And that's what David at his best is showing us in this passage. What an amazing experience it is to receive the outpouring of this kindness, this hesed love. And that brings us to our second point this morning, experiencing the outpouring of God's kindness. We read in verse 5. So King David had Mephibosheth brought from the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. You can just imagine the, the fear that grips Mephibosheth's house, heart as he hears the knock on the door. And he looks out his window, and he sees an entourage of royal officials there. Mephibosheth, we have a summons for you to appear before the king in Jerusalem. His heart's pounding. He's carried to the king's entourage, put on a horse or a donkey. And with every step toward Jerusalem, terror rising, now what? Can you picture him hobbling into the king's palace, trembling for his life, throwing his crutches aside and falling flat on his face before the king from whom he has no right to expect anything but execution? What a surprise it must have been for him to hear the words that come out of David's mouth. And interestingly, the narrator stops calling David King here and just calls him David, stressing the personal man-to-man, tender interaction that's going to take place as David says, Mephibosheth. David knows his name. How does he know his name? There's no sign in the text that Ziba the servant told the king the guy's name. Maybe David remembers now the day Jonathan came running to him, his, his friend, beaming from ear to ear and saying, David, I've got great news. My wife had a baby boy last night. His name is Mephibosheth. And I can imagine him thinking, why did you name him Seething Shame? But ah, congratulations anyways. You've got a son. Now here he is, this little boy, now a crippled man falling flat on his face before David, thinking, surely I'm a goner. This is the end of me. But then he hears these wonderful words, the words that the angels spoke hundreds of years later on a cold, dark night over Bethlehem, the city of David, when they said, Fear not, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Fear not. 
words that legend has it are repeated 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the, week, of the year. Don't be afraid, David said to Mephibosheth. Since I intend to show you hesed, kindness, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. David was assuring him, though you have no right to expect anything from me, I'm going to give you everything I have in my household. I'm going to love you with never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And verse 7 is the blazing center of this whole narrative. This is where we see the outpouring of hesed from the king to this man. Mephibosheth could not have imagined in his wildest dreams that he was being brought into David's court not to be destroyed, but instead to be lavished with kindness and love. He's encountering a different kind of king here. A king who himself has tasted the loving kindness of the Lord in his life. A king who has said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything I need in him. And he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. King David wants to shower Mephibosheth with the same goodness and mercy and kindness that have been pursuing him all the days of his life, and he does it in three ways, and we see these in verse 7. First, he pardons Mephibosheth. That's what's behind these words, do not fear. Yes, you're part of an enemy's household. Yes, you belong to the rebel clan. Yes, I could destroy you. But Mephibosheth, I've made a covenant with your father who laid down his life for me in battle, so do not fear. You're pardoned, Mephibosheth. You're welcome here. That's the first thing. God's kindness begins with pardon for our association with rebellion against his reign. We were on the enemy's team. We were alienated and hostile toward God. We were rebels to his cause, but he welcomes us as we come trembling before his royal majesty and says to us, fear not, because for the sake of my son Jesus, I will enter into a covenant of grace and peace with you. Pardon. Then it continues with provision. Look at verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. In other words, I'm going to make you rich again, Mephibosheth. You're going to be well provided for. You're going to have a glorious inheritance. David's kindness continues with provision. Then thirdly, this lavish kindness culminates in the privilege of adoption. David says, I'm always going to make you rich, and you shall eat at my table always. You will always eat meals at my table, Mephibosheth. I'm going to treat you like a member of my royal family. You're going to always eat here in my house. J.I. Packer wrote in Knowing God, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means 
that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. I'm welcome in his house. I'm seated at his table. That's what David does for Mephibosheth. That's how Mephibosheth experiences the hesed of God, pardon, provision, adoption. One outline that I read expresses God's hesed kindness from David to Mephibosheth so vividly. It says, David sought him, he sent for him, he spoke to him, and he spared him. Then he gave him a new place, a new provision, and a new parent. And as I read that, I thought, this is my story. This is my song. God sought me. He sent for me. He spoke words of grace to me. He spared me from the wrath my sins deserve. Then he gave me a new place, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, And he gave me a new provision, lavished me with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And he is my new parent, so that with the Apostle John, I can say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Oh, the wonder that I, a child of wrath and hell, should be called a child of God. Praise him for his grace of pardon, provision, and adoption. Is that your story too? Have you come trembling before the majesty of the king of heaven only to realize that his heart is full of loving kindness towards you for the sake of Jesus, his son? Have you come to see that Jesus gave up his throne in heaven and came down and entered into harm's way to save you, to protect you from harm, and he gave up his throne so that he could raise you and and seat you with him in the heavenly places until you're persuaded that God is no longer angry with you because of your sins? You'll always stay at a distance from God. Martin Luther once said, if I could believe that God was no longer angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. I'd do somersaults. I'd leap for joy if I could just know that God is no longer angry with me. And then in God's perfect timing, the glorious light of the gospel broke through to Martin Luther. He saw the truth that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. For the sake of what Jesus has done on the cross, Luther saw that God was willing to turn away his wrath towards sinners and instead to accept them as his beloved children and to lavish on them kindness. And when Martin Luther laid hold of Jesus as the Lamb of God who took away his sins and realized that God was determined to show him kindness for the sake of Christ, he was filled with joy unspeakable and peace. It was then that he was able to write words and prayers like this. O gracious God, I am fully aware that I am unworthy. I deserve to be a brother of Satan and not of Christ. But Christ, your dear son, died and rose for me. I am his brother. 
He earnestly desires that I should believe in him without doubt and fear. I need no longer regard myself as unworthy and full of sin. For this I love and thank him from my heart. Praise be to the faithful Savior, for he is so gracious and merciful, as are you and the Holy Spirit in eternity. And all of God's forgiven people say amen to that good news. So how do you know? How do you know if you've experienced this kindness, this hesed, this, this mercy from God? How do you know if you've been ravished by it and you're being transformed by it? How can you test the operations of God's kindness in your life? That brings us to our last point this morning, testing the operations of God's loving kindness. I I see three indications in Mephibosheth's life that God's kindness is operating in him and making him a whole new man. And the first is abasement, the test of abasement. I'm not talking about a, a place underneath your house. I'm talking about a posture before God. The first thing that happens when you experience God's kindness is that his kindness leads you to repentance, recognizing your sin for what it is and all its hideous ugliness and hating your sin and and turning away from your sin to Jesus and clinging to him. It makes you humble before the Lord when you experience his kindness. It empties you of your self-righteousness and pride. It rids you of any whiff of entitlement. You don't believe you're worthy of the least of all of God's mercies. Like Jacob said at the end of his life, reflecting on how God had shepherded him every step of the way, he said, I'm not worthy of the least of all the kindnesses you have shown me, God. You're amazed he's been so good, so generous, so kind to you. Look at how Mephibosheth responds to this lavish display of kindness in verse 8. It says, Mephibosheth paid homage again paying obeisance, falling on his face before the king. And he said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? It's not that Mephibosheth is just suffering from a pathological lack of self-esteem. It's not that. It's that Mephibosheth cannot believe that the king of the nation would treat an enemy like this. He's humbled. He abases himself in the king's presence. That's what happens to us when we recognize what the king of glory has done for us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died for me, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. 
How hateful is this self-exaltation that rises up in my heart? No, put that down. Abase yourself. Humble yourself before the king who has been so lavishly kind to you. That's, that's the effect it has on our life. And it, it changes our approach and our attitude about everything. This week, a friend who some of you know, for whom Marcy prayed this morning, went golfing with his wife on Tuesday. On Wednesday, she collapsed in their home from a massive heart attack. 65 years old. The next several hours were so traumatic for my friend, what he went through. So unexpected. I arrived in her hospital room one minute after she died. I heard the sobbing, the intense grief. But through the sobs, amazing grace and gratitude poured forth from my friend's lips. Gratitude for God's kindness in giving him such a wife for 45 years. Gratitude for God's mercy in sparing her from a long and drawn-out illness and taking her quickly. Gratitude for Jesus and what he's done to welcome her into heaven. And I watched him just minutes after she died play Chris Tomlin's song, Holy Forever, standing before his wife's lifeless body with his hands lifted up like this, singing praise to the King of grace and loving kindness, worshiping him. That's someone who realizes that he's the recipient of God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And he's amazed. I talked to another friend last night who's going through what I think is a, a pretty big trial with cancer. Soon he'll need to have a surgery that will have life-altering implications. And I expressed the heaviness my heart feels for him. And he responded, maybe this says something about me, but I don't share your sense of heaviness. I told him he was demonstrating a calm confidence in God's care for him in this trial. And he said, not only am I experiencing God's kindness and care in this trial, I am experiencing God's care by this trial. He believes that by this cancer, God is working things in his heart that will result in greater sanctification. He believes that the one from whom he has the right to expect nothing is instead going to be faithful to give him everything he needs in Christ. That's the effect, the experience, and the reception of God's hesed has on your life. It makes you a humble, grateful, unentitled person, amazed at God's grace. Secondly, the test of acceptance. Have you accepted the kindness that God 
has offered in Christ. Mephibosheth does just that. Look at the second part of verse 11 where it says, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. He didn't say, David, I appreciate the expression of your heart and your generous offer, but look at me. I'm a cripple. You can't expect me to go shuffling in there with the rest of your royal family. I'm embarrassed to be seen in public. I can't eat at your table. I can't act like I'm part of royalty. It's a nice offer, but I'm going to stay at a distance. No, thank you. That's exactly what some people do when they hear the gospel. They think, that sounds too good to be true for me. So I'm going to stay at a distance. Oh, don't do that. Be like Mephibosheth, who says, I'm a cripple, but I'm going in. I'm leaning in to the kindness of this king. I'm going to accept his offer. Verse 13 stresses it again. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, right at the heart of the king's palace, in the king's courts, and he ate always at the king's table. This was a regular thing for him. Three square meals a day, feasting on the goodness of the household of the king, drinking from the river of his delights. Oh, how precious is your loving kindness to the children of men. Notice that Mephibosheth's condition doesn't change. The last phrase in the chapter says, now he was lame in both his feet. He stays a cripple, but he has a new status. He's now a child of the king. The point no longer is that he is a cripple because his crippled feet are now covered by the tablecloth of the king's grace, and he's a new man now. He accepts the king's hesed. He revels in his generosity. And I encourage you to do the same to the offer that God offers through Jesus Christ to reconcile you to himself. And then thirdly, the test of the operations of God's hesed in your heart is the test of reconciliation. Abasement, acceptance, reconciliation. You start to love those who by every human standard would be your enemy. That's what we see in the heart of King David. He reaches across political barriers, brings a rival son of the rival king's family into his dining hall and treats him as his son. He reaches across tribal barriers too. David is from the tribe of Judah. Mephibosheth is from the tribe of Benjamin. And he breaks down every power differential. Mephibosheth has lost all his wealth. He's living as a refugee. He's lame in both feet. He's disabled. But Mephibosheth is given the same honor, the same dignity, the same status as Solomon and Absalom and every one of the king's sons and daughters. And that's what happens as a church when we gather around this table. We are still all struggling with the shame of our indwelling sin. We are all lame and bankrupt and broken, and yet we are all beloved by the King of glory and of grace. We are all seated at his shame, our shame seated at his table, and our shame has been covered by the tablecloth of his grace. Though we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that, friends, that's all we need to hold us together. That's what we have in common 
as God's people. That's what reconciles us to people who would otherwise be our enemies, people who we would otherwise not pay any attention to. Someone has said, what binds us together is not common education or common race or common income levels or common politics or common nationality or common accents or common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's what draws us together. Once we were enemies, now we're seated at his table. So let's get to know this word hesed, because this is going to be the theme of our praise for all eternity. God has done all of this for us so that he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus through endless ages the king of glory and grace from whom we have the right to expect nothing instead has lavished on us everything that we have and he will for all eternity lavish his kindness on us. So let's stand together and let's take into our hands this bread and this cup.